All right, why don't you take your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to resume our study through God's Word. And the Apostle Paul begins this letter to the Colossians by giving thanks to God for them. He's thankful for their newfound faith in Christ and the hope they now have laid up in heaven, which, back in verse 5, it says they heard of in the word of truth, the gospel. And now he wants to see both grow, their faith and their hope. He wants their faith to grow that they might bear fruit, and he wants to see their hope grow that they might endure. And both are critical. And speaking of that hope, it's so important. This hope of the gospel involves believing that Jesus is the Lord, that he died for me, and that he will safely usher me into his kingdom. And it's this heavenly hope which, in many respects, really keeps us going. And the strength of your endurance is directly tied to the strength of your hope. There's a big concern of Paul for these new Colossian believers They'd come to place their hope in Christ, but a false teaching was threatening that hope and attempting to pull them away to another hope, a a false hope, an empty hope. And so part of his goal in this letter is to, to write to them to inform their hope and confirm their hope. That these Gentiles who had turned away from their pagan gods had not placed their hope in Christ in vain. Despite what the false teachers may have been saying, They need to be assured of who Jesus is and what he had done for them. And that their faith and their hope must both be grounded in the person and the work of Christ. And so Paul goes on in this letter to build up their faith and their hope by building up the object of their hope, namely Christ. And so we just finished verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1, which is like a master class of the supremacy of Christ. His person, to be more precise, Jesus was a man who lived among humans, a perfect life on earth, but he was more than a man that we've learned that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. He's the, the perfect image of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of all things. He's preeminent over all things. He's the cosmic Lord of the church and the universe. Everything we've learned, what does that all mean? It means you can trust this person. It means you have a worthy object of hope. And that your hope is only as good as the object of your hope. You can jump out of an airplane with an umbrella thinking it will save you, Mary Poppins style, but you will soon learn you've placed your hope in an unworthy object. And Christ, however, being supreme, he will not fail in his salvation promises. That you can trust him because of his person. You can also trust him because of his work. And so we find in this passage, 15 through 20, Paul has, has bookends on it uh, featuring Christ's work. And so going back to verse 13 from before, there we learned, Colossians 1, 13, says, For he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then we learned about a huge dimension of Christ's work or the atonement, namely redemption. And because of our sin and rebellion, not only do we incur guilt and wrath before God, but we also find ourselves enslaved to sin and unrighteousness. We're in bondage to sin, its penalty, its power, its presence. And therefore, we're in bondage to, to death itself. The wages of sin is death. But in Christ's death, he paid the price to ransom us and free us from that bondage. 
And that price was his own life. And the infinite value of his blood can not only pay the full penalty of our sins, but also pay the price to, to transfer us into his kingdom. And so no doubt, redemption is a huge dimension of the atonement. That we can live with confidence knowing we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But that's not all. There are other crucial elements to the work of Christ. They serve to further fuel our faith and our hope. And so we find on the other end of this bookend, in our passage today, verses 21 through 23, another just really big dimension to the atonement, to what Jesus did for us. We find reconciliation. We got a hint of this last time, verses 19 through 20, where he's wrapping up this depiction of the person of Christ. And go back to verse 19. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We found this reconciliation refers to a state of peace. It speaks of the cessation of hostility. That Christ's victory on the cross is the means by which God will bring about lasting peace in this world. And there's a universal and kind of cosmic side to this reconciliation where, as we found, this world exists in open rebellion against God. But that's going to end in one of two ways, either salvation or judgment. In light of his victory over sin and death, Christ Jesus has been appointed judge of the living and the dead. And all are going to have to pass before his judgment seat. And on that day, all hostility, all rebellion will end. Either as you pass into glorification or you you pass into damnation. One way or another, though, sin will be tolerated no longer. From your perspective, though, you want to be on the salvation side of that reconciliation. And that comes by faith in Christ. And I think for this reason, Paul, he carries on this thought of reconciliation in verses 21 through 23. Picks up on this theme, but stresses that this now needs to be personal. That Jesus may be the reconciler of all things. But if you want to be reconciled in salvation, you need to come to faith in Christ and you need to remain in that faith. And part of the good news of the gospel is that peace between God and man is possible. It's possible to have peace with God, but it's only possible through Christ. So we find that the strength of your peace and your hope and your endurance are all tied together into how well you know the object of your faith, Christ Jesus, and how well you trust the object of your faith. Now, hopefully what Paul has to say to us this morning here will only strengthen that hope and that trust in Christ Jesus. So with this in mind, let's, let's read this little passage now, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Carrying on verse 20, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed 
You continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. These verses really expound on the doctrine of reconciliation. And few gospel truths are as encouraging and motivating as know that in Christ, you, you have complete peace with God. This is something you need to know with clarity and, and assurance and certainty from Scripture itself. And so we're going to spend time learning as Paul just kind of breaks down reconciliation for us. We're going to find here five elements of our reconciliation with God in Christ, which build up our hope. Five elements of our reconciliation with God, which they all serve to build up our hope. And we need that. And so first, the need for reconciliation. Simple enough, but you have to start here. Paul starts here, the need for reconciliation. And so let's go back to verse 21. Notice he says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's where he starts. Verse 21, he sets up a contrast. And Paul does this quite often, this contrast between you formerly and then you now. He's going to show this is what used to be true of you, but here's what's true of you now. This is what you were like BC before Christ. And then shortly we're going to find out what we are like now after Christ. Very similar to Ephesians 5.8. He says, you were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord. So what he says here in verse 21, this belongs to the past. This is true. He's going to give three characteristic marks of us, really of all people, B.C., before Christ. Let's look at these three marks. First, you were formerly alienated. It's an intensified form of this Greek word for alienated. So it means really alienated, completely estranged. It speaks of the outsider, the stranger, the foreigner, the one who's shut out of the kingdom of God. This is the one who dwells outside of the camp because of his uncleanness. And Gentiles in the Old Testament really exemplified this type of alienation. We're going to see a lot of parallels with Ephesians. Well, the whole book of Colossians, you know, parallels Ephesians. But and keep a finger in Colossians and just flip backwards briefly to Ephesians 2. You want to keep a bookmark in Ephesians as well, because we'll, we'll flip back and forth a few times this morning in particular. But look at Ephesians 2.12. He's speaking to these Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time, formerly, you know, B.C., separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You know, that said, the Jews made the mistake of thinking that just because they had God's law and his national promises, they were automatically reconciled to God. But, but no, as we'll see, no one gains this reconciliation with God by birthright or by good deeds, but only by faith in Christ. It's important to understand that alienation from God is a universal and ongoing problem. 
back in Colossians. So keep a finger, keep a bookmark in Ephesians. You can go back to Colossians. But alienated in this passage, it's a perfect participle, which just means it's speaking of a past action with ongoing results. And that our natures were corrupt from birth. We enter this world at enmity with God. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. And those who speak lies go astray from birth. And that our sin has estranged us from God. So first, you were formerly alienated. Second, he says, you were formerly hostile in mind. Secondly, you were hostile in mind. This word for mind, it's not talking about your, your head or your brain, but this word is used to speak of your thoughts, your intellect, your understanding. It's, it's in this regard you were hostile to God. At just the base level of your thinking, you were hostile to God. Hostile means hostile. It's an adjective derived from the word for hatred. This is the hostility of an enemy or adversary. I mean, just imagine falling into the hands of a terrorist who has a deep hatred of America. You could try and reason with them or convince them or change their mind, but it would be utterly hopeless because their hatred runs so deep. But that describes that the level of hostility we had toward God before Christ. That in our very natures, we were God's enemies. So go back to Ephesians 2. Just, you know, a quick flip here. They're pretty close, right? You know, Ephesians 2, look at verse 3. After telling us we were dead in our trespasses and sins, B.C., before Christ, verse 3 of Ephesians 2 says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then also flip to Ephesians 4. 17 and 18, another passage that speaks of the, the former depravity of these, these Gentiles. Ephesians 4, like at verse 17. It says later, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of their heart. You can go back to Colossians 1. But you see, again, the theme of alienation, a darkness in mind and understanding and and excluded from the life of God. God gave us our minds. We might use them to love him and serve him. You know, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your mind But before Christ and apart from Christ, we hated God and rebelled against God with all of our minds. And such enmity in our thinking would only naturally show up in our doing. And so we find third, back in verse 21 of Colossians 1, third, you were formerly engaged in evil deeds. Instead of using our minds and our bodies to serve God and and bear fruit, We were engaged in evil deeds, he says. You may recall back from verse 9 in Colossians where we found this upward spiral where right thinking leads to right doing. As you renew your mind with the truth and set your mind on things above, it's going to lead you by the Spirit to walk in a manner 
worthy of your calling. So scripture teaches this principle over and over that our doing follows our thinking. And verse 21 here is, is the opposite. It's the downward spiral. The wrong thinking leads to wrong doing. This is Romans 1 in a, in a nutshell. That man, as he became corrupt in his thinking, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The man refused to acknowledge God as a God gave him over to a depraved mind. That's where it started, a depraved mind. And that in turn led to a whole host of depraved actions. This is the boat, though, all of us were in before Christ. You and I were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Now, when some people, if not most people, hear this, they don't like it. It offends them. It offends their own sense of goodness. They're, they're, not, they're not bad like this. They're not like actively hating God or anything. But you really need to be convinced of this and of your need for reconciliation. Otherwise, you have no need of Christ. And that is actually the problem with most people. They don't cling to Christ because they, they think they're pretty good. They're trusting in their own goodness to save them, to get them to God. But this is why you need to come to terms with Scripture's teaching on this, this depravity and realize, no, it, it does apply to you. You're in need. So just to touch on this a little further, I want to draw on one of my favorite analogies. It's from Lorraine Botner's book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. But he gives an analogy of pirates. Are pirates good people or bad people? We tend to glorify pirates these days. And you might find some good things in them. They have their own rule of law and regulations, which they obey strictly. They can have some virtues like courage and faithfulness. They can do good deeds like give money to the poor. But does that make them good? Well, not in the eyes of the crown. Just stepping stepping back, you have to realize that their whole existence is in wicked rebellion against the laws of the kingdom and the king. And yes, sometimes they will do good things in accordance with the law, but they're not doing that because they're trying to obey the king. It just might suit their lifestyle. Pirates, for example, might be strictly honest with one another, their whole existence is predicated on dishonesty to the crown. You see, pirates exist in a constant state of rebellion against king and country. Even if they're not murderers, none of the good they do is out of allegiance to the king. They hate the king. They don't recognize him. They don't honor him. The king's claims are rejected. The king's will is violated. They live like there's no king. And there's a perfect analogy of those outside of Christ. Now, all people are this way. They're born in enmity with their maker. And they exist in a constant state of rebellion against God. They don't recognize Christ as their king. Yes, some might serve a God of their own making, but they're not bowing the knee and recognizing the one true God. And this is proven as they reject his claims, they reject his authority, they reject his lordship. They reject his word. They, they don't live according to his will, but their own. They live like there's no God. And they spurn Christ by refusing to acknowledge him 
and honor him. And this is why God himself says that there's, there's none who are good. There's not one who is good to the crown, to, to God's eyes. Everyone's like, like a pirate to him. And from the crown's perspective, there's nothing good about a pirate. They might not all be murderers, but even the good things they do are spoiled by just their state of rebellion. Let me read you kind of a lengthy quote from Botner in his book. He says, quote, The good actions of unregenerate men are not positively sinful in themselves, but sinful from defect. They lack the principle which alone can make them righteous in the sight of God. In the case of pirates, it's easy to see that all their actions are sin against the government. While they continue as pirates, they're sailing, mending, or rigging the vessel. Even their eating and drinking are all sins in the eyes of the government, as there are only so many expedients to enable them to continue their piratical career. When have you ever used piratical career in a sentence? And they're all part of their life of rebellion. And so is sinners. While the heart is wrong, it corrupts everything in the sight of God, even the most ordinary occupations. For the plain, unequivocal language of God is, even the lamp of the wicked is sin. End quote. So you see, this is why it's simply impossible for someone who's in a state of rebellion against God by not recognizing God as God and Christ as Lord. It's impossible for God to consider that person good. They could be the nicest person on the planet. They could do a lot of good things. And there are many nice people out there who are relatively very good compared to criminals. But before God, they're still rebels. They're they're still pirates. Have they acknowledged him? Have they confessed Christ? Have they turned from their rebellion? Have they submitted to his word and will? Until they do so, they're, they're cut off from God. They are truly alienated from his kingdom, just like the pirate is alienated from his home country. Now, Scripture's teaching on depravity does not mean our situation is hopeless. It's just meant to show you that you have no hope in yourself. You're not the hope. Rather, it teaches us that Christ really is our only hope. That's precisely, though, what we need to realize If we're going to be saved, we have to be convinced of our need for reconciliation and that there's no hope in ourselves, which is what scripture teaches. This reconciliation, this admittance back into the kingdom, it's not going to come from the pirate. There's nothing they can do. Only the king can pardon them. And he doesn't have to. He would be right and righteous to judge them all. Can you just imagine, though, a king that would sacrifice his own son to pardon a bunch of guilty pirates, to offer them amnesty, total amnesty and acceptance by making his own son, the prince, pay their penalty? That's unbelievable. But that's precisely what God did for us. As we find next, secondly, the fact of reconciliation you know, we spend extra time on the first point on purpose. You have to be convinced of your need. You need reconciliation with God because you're in rebellion too, whether you think you're good or not. 
But hopefully being convinced everything should come naturally, should come downhill from here. And so now, if you are convinced of your need, we, we gladly accept here that the fact of reconciliation that God has provided reconciliation for us in Christ. Verse 22. He says, you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So here we're first introduced to the fact of reconciliation. Christ has reconciled you. Fact. He has done it. This word reconciled speaks of setting up or restoring a relationship of peace. Those who are far off are brought near in Christ. Those who are outside the kingdom are are brought in. Enemies are made friends. And we're talking a complete reconciliation. Remember I said the word for alienation was an intensified form. This word for reconciliation likewise is in an intensified form. Whereas we were completely and and totally estranged, that now in Christ we can be completely and totally reconciled. This is not like a couple who, they have a fight, but they're reconciled, but it's still kind of awkward, distant between them. This is the full restoration of relationship. (laughs) It is a huge aspect of the atonement. Now, sin produces alienation from God, from a holy God by definition. And after Adam and Eve sinned, you recall what was one of the main consequences. They were forcibly removed from the Garden of Eden. Man has been cut off from God's presence ever since. And even as God began his plan of redemption, the theme of separation continued. Right? He chose the people for himself. He was going to dwell among them. His special presence was pictured in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the tabernacle. But you realize like no ordinary person could even go in the tabernacle and then no priest could even go in the Holy of Holies being separated by a veil. Only the high priest could enter that veil once a year on the day of atonement. And undoubtedly God designed this to teach that sin has created a wedge between God and man. You don't belong in his presence because you're unclean. And your only hope of reconciliation is for that wedge to be removed. We can't remove that wedge. But God made a provision for this in the Old Testament through animal sacrifice. Though imperfect, it showed that atonement has to be made for our sins. And God in his greater mercy would go on to provide a a perfect And a complete atonement, one that we really need, one that would remove the wedge of sin once for all. And that perfect and complete atonement came in the cross of Christ, where the Lamb of God died for us to take away our sins. And that veil was removed. As we find thirdly now, the means of reconciliation. The means of our reconciliation. Again, in verse 22, it says, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Notice, Paul doesn't just state the fact of a reconciliation, but he he adds the means by which it was accomplished. That he has reconciled you in his fleshly body 
through death. It's kind of interesting. Like, why include that? Why not just say he's reconciled you? One possibility is that this is in response to the Colossian false teachers. It does appear that they were denying not just the full deity of Jesus, but also his full humanity and his incarnation. And what Paul says here, though, makes clear that the atonement was made in conjunction with his fleshly body. That he was a true human substitute. And certainly Paul is emphasizing Christ's full humanity. In a way, it's redundant to say his fleshly body. We could just said body. But he's making crystal clear Jesus had a real body. This needs to be stressed. I mean, Paul just put on display the cosmic supremacy of the Son of God. That Jesus is fully divine. But now he's making equally clear in the incarnation that this, this divine Son of God in Jesus is now also fully man. That in Jesus, the Son of God took on a 100% authentic, genuine, full human body and human nature apart from the stain of sin. This is an important truth because it shows us how this Jesus, he is to be fully identified with God, but he's also to be fully identified with man. In the incarnation, he came to fully identify with the people for whom he was going to save. In fact, we see in the atonement the necessity of Jesus being fully man and fully God. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. It was going to take a perfect, sinless human to take the place of other humans. And that is why he had to be a man, to be our substitute sacrifice. But it would take one in whom the fullness of deity dwelt to make a complete atonement, a complete payment of the infinite wrath of God on behalf of a multitude of sinners all at once. And likewise, that's what he did for us being fully God. And this also explains why Jesus had to die. Coming to earth as a man was not enough. That did not make atonement. He had to be our substitute sacrifice. If we were going to be reconciled, that the wages of sin is death. And so if Jesus was going to pay our price and remove that wedge of sin, he had to take on our penalty, which is death. He was going to have to die. And that's what he did on the cross, where he fully identified with our sin and our rebellion. It's worthwhile to be reminded what death signifies in Scripture. Do you know, do you you recall what death is in Scripture? Death is all about separation. The physical death is the separation of your body from your soul. Spiritual death is the separation of your soul from God. And Jesus endured a form of both for our sakes. As he died on the cross, in some way we can't fully understand. And though he never ceased being the perfect son of God, as God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, in some sense, Jesus experienced our alienation from the Father. Then he did so that we might be reconciled, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
I love this quote by commentator David Garland. He says, quote, The theme of human rebellion and sin is an unbroken scarlet thread that runs throughout the entire Bible and to the foot of the cross, but there it has been severed, end quote. This is why we sing of Christ's death. It's rather bloody, violent, gruesome death. We sing about. And to the outsider, I'm sure that sounds strange, creepy, odd. There's an old hymn. You, you know, it goes like this. That there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners washed beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's some stunning imagery, but it's biblical. The blood of Jesus itself, it's not mystical. It's not magical. It's simply used to speak of his life being poured out unto death on the cross for us. And it is that life, that the perfect life of the Lamb of God, the Son of God made man. It's that life that's the means of our reconciliation. Now, we're not quite done because you also need to know that, that Jesus had a goal, a purpose in this work of reconciliation. So, number four, we find the goal of reconciliation. The goal of reconciliation. You see this right in verse 22, right? He says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see, the goal of Christ's reconciling death was a presentation that the cross was designed to present a people to the Son. It was God the Father's design to redeem a remnant of rebels, to reconcile them and to make them his people. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. See this in a couple places. Ephesians 1 verse 4. You see this goal being the will of the Father in Ephesians 1 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is the will of the Father. Now, go to Ephesians 5. This was also the will of the Son to to redeem a people for himself and to make them holy. Ephesians 5, 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is said over and over again, that God reconciled us to be his people. And naturally, that people is going to have to be holy and blameless because Christ is holy and blameless. If we're going to be his bride, he wants his bride wearing white. We have to be holy and blameless. Those two words were used of the sacrificial system, speaking of an animal that had to be without defect, perfect. And that's what we need to be if we're going to enter God's eternal presence, 
Again, you know, all this on our own is just hopeless. We have no hope of being holy and blameless. But in Christ, it's not hopeless. It's accomplished. It's already accomplished. Now, back in Colossians 1, Paul adds here, beyond reproach, which just means that when Christ has finished reconciling you, you're so clean. You're so forgiven. You're so made righteous that not even a single accusation or reproach of sin could stick against you. After coming to Christ, yeah, we still sin. But if you're truly reconciled and made new in Christ, one, you should have a new heart with new desires such that you hate your sin, you're striving against it. And two, even your ongoing sins have been dealt with by Christ. Never treat your sin flippantly, but be encouraged that the price for it has already been paid. Now, of course, this goal of making us holy and blameless, it awaits a future fulfillment. And scripture speaks of our salvation in past, present, and future terms. We can legitimately say we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. There's different aspects of the application of our redemption. And the same goes for reconciliation. Naturally, we're all longing for the future reconciliation. We will long for that that full, final restoration with God. To be in his presence. That's our hope for the future. And that future reconciliation is guaranteed by God's own word and authority and power. But it's crucial That you know you possess that right now. And you can know. How? Well, we're going to find lastly, number five, the proof of reconciliation. Lastly, number five, the proof of reconciliation. Back in Colossians 1, if you're not back there. When you read at the beginning, I wonder if you found verse 23 interesting Because Paul inserts this if statement. Do you see that? You know, back to verse 22, that he has now reconciled us in his fleshly body through death in order to present uh, you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. You see that if statement? He's expressing something conditional here. They need to do something. And what? They, they need to continue in the faith. So let's explain that. He's obviously switching to the human side of salvation. He's dealing with our subjective experience of salvation. Salvation is a gift we receive. You don't work for it. It's something that's handed to us by faith. And faith is really like an anti-work. You know, faith in Christ, it's like the pirate giving up his rebellion, repenting of his wrong, running back to the king, acknowledging his full guilt, and then just begging for mercy. That's, That's faith. And faith in Christ, however, comes with God's promise that you will receive mercy. He's just simply chosen to promise that. Uh, you come to faith in Christ, you will receive mercy. But here's the thing, though. There's such a thing as a false faith or a phony faith. 
There is a difference between a mere profession of faith and then the real possession of faith. You know, there are many reasons people might say they believe in Jesus, but they're not actually bowing the knee. He's not their Lord. Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. And don't misunderstand, you are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. That true saving faith necessarily displays itself in a life of discipleship. And that's going to include an endurance, perseverance, not falling away. And Paul has some concern that these Christians might fall away. They might revert, which would prove their faith was never of the saving kind, never of the genuine kind. And he doesn't believe that. We'll find later he actually has confidence in these Colossians that they're the real deal. They're they're genuine. But still, from a human perspective, they need to be called and reminded to persevere. It's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. The final and ultimate proof of your salvation and reconciliation with God is your endurance in the faith to the end. You need to see the balance in scripture between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility in salvation. That God is sovereign in salvation. And he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. That God will finish the job. He will make you stand before him holy and blameless. That's Jude 24. It says to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God will do it. He will make you finish the course. But on the human side, you've got to persevere. You have to hold on to him. Hope is held out to you, but you have to hold on to it until the end. That's the display of a faith that's of the saving variety. And so it's, No wonder that Jude 21, just a few verses before, Jude says this, Jude 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You have to see how both are true at the same time. And from our perspective then, while completely trusting in God's sovereign power to protect us, and preserve us, we need to just be diligent to persevere. And so just take seriously this call, like he says, continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. This word for continue means it's to remain in a place or a condition for a long time. And faith here is being viewed objectively like the body of truth. So it's like Paul is saying, don't move out of the neighborhood of, of the faith. You've entered into this community of people brought together by common confession that Jesus is the Lord. And he's like, don't don't leave that. Don't leave these people. Don't leave that place. Don't move out of the neighborhood of faith. Also, he says, firmly established, steadfast. These are both like construction terms. They speak of the base or the foundation of something. 
He's saying, make sure you've got a rock solid foundation to your faith. You don't want faith on wheels. You don't want faith on sand. You need faith that's built on the rock of Christ and his word. And think about your faith, the things you believe. Is that built on truth? Do you know what you believe? Are you secure in your knowledge of God? Or is your faith just built on personal experience? Is your faith built on emotions? That type of faith is not going to last very long. Paul says you must not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And this phrase, move away, pictures other forces at work trying to to push an object away. Like a gushing river, it's trying to carry you downstream. You might swim into it thinking you're strong enough to resist, but not for long. You're going to be carried away if you're relying on yourself. But if you go in the middle of the river, you stand on a huge rock or boulder, you will never move. And likewise, those who are inundated by the voices of the world, all the while relying on themselves, those are the types of Christians who compromise. Compromise their beliefs. They compromise their values. They're the ones who are eventually pulled away from the hope of the gospel. And and they're the ones, some of whom, fall away. Instead, though, stand on Christ. Let his word fill you continually. And anchor your hope in his person and in his work, like we've been learning here in Colossians 1. And you will not be so easily moved away. It all comes back to this hope, he says, which is like the sister of faith. This hope keeps us going and is so essential to our endurance in the race of faith. And the Colossians were hearing all these voices which were denying and diminishing Christ, his person, his work, his supremacy, his sufficiency. He's not enough for this life or the next. You need something new, something better something special. And it's really no different today. We're still inundated by a world of voices saying, Christ, he's not enough. He's not the answer. His cross is foolishness. His ways are dumb. Now they're saying his morality is upside down. And this is not how you should be spending your life. There's so many voices, thousands trying to pull us away from him and our hope. I imagine there's nothing a pirate hates more than a fellow pirate who's given up and run back home to the king to beg for mercy. But as Paul says to the Colossians, you got to know that you have not placed your hope in Christ in vain. You can't stop all the voices that are trying to pull you away from him and your hope, but you can't overpower them. And you do that by founding your faith and your hope and the truth of the gospel. And this gospel includes the person of Jesus, all the truth about who he is, fully God, fully man, supreme. And this gospel includes the work of Christ, all the truth about what he has done for us. And as we've seen today, that includes his work to fully reconcile us to God in his death, to make us holy and blameless forever. That is what is true of us right now in Christ. The takeaways here are many, 
from appreciation to thanksgiving, worship, holy living. But see here chiefly perseverance. Perseverance. That you need to stay right here. Stay among his people. Stay in the neighborhood of the faith. You don't want to go back to the open ocean. You might have your own way there, but it's going to lead to death. You need to be convinced that his ways are better. His kingdom is better. It's better to be reconciled to the king. And so do not move away from the hope of the gospel. Stand firm in Christ. And as you do so, you will gain the assurance of your eternal reconciliation. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we, that's what we need to do. We need to not move away from the hope of the gospel. You've given us Christ. You've given us everything we need, though we were rebels out on the high seas, living our own lives, doing what we pleased for our glory and our good. And you've been only just to, to judge us all. You've been perfectly righteous to do so, but in your amazing and incomprehensible love, you, you didn't. You, you, you made a way of reconciliation for us to be brought back to you and to, into your presence. And it came at a high cost. It was the only way a substitute had to be made for rebels. And you, you gave us the perfect substitute of your own son, Christ. And that now by turning from our rebellion and, and clinging to him by faith, we can be saved. We can be brought back. And we can be reconciled. And I pray for any here this morning who've not done that, that their eyes would be open. They would come to terms with their rebellion before you and would simply bow the knee, turn to Christ, believe today and, and be saved. And for us who have, we, we need to be reminded for the sake of thanksgiving and praise and worship and, and holy living, but also for perseverance, that we who have clung to Christ need to hold on till the end and persevere, trusting your power, but we need to do our part and remain in the faith. Help us to not easily be moved away we certainly live in a culture and a world that has so many voices trying to tug us away who still hate you and want us to join them back in their rebellion. But it may that not be the case for us as our faith and hope are founded on the solid rock of Christ. Build us up then in Christ more and more. And we trust you will do that each and every day as we cling on to him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.